I'm Uruak Mimo, and this is Fearless. As executive director of Tuaweze, Aidan Ayakuze regularly commissions polls on social issues and trends across East Africa. One of those polls showed an erosion in the popularity of the late Tanzanian president, John Magufuli, and the publication of those results unleashed the wrath of his administration. Aidan, thank you for joining me on Fearless. I'd like to understand your early life. But before we get into that, um, for people who might be unfamiliar with the details of your recent troubles, please give us a recap of what happened. Okay, thank you, Udwak. It's so nice uh, to be here. Thank you for inviting me for this uh, conversation. So um, let me start with a bit of background. I joined Tuaweza in May 2015 as executive director. Um, and in uh, just a few months later, it was election time in Tanzania. We did a poll, a public opinion poll, uh, to see, gauge what voters uh, were going to do uh, come October 2015. Uh, and at that time, President, uh, the late President Magufuli was the candidate for the first time. Uh, we polled. He had a very fierce rival in uh, Edward Lowassa, who was formerly of the ruling party and joined the opposition. Uh, so we did this poll. Uh, and it came out showing uh, 65% in favor of the late President Magufuli and about um, 20% in favor of, uh, 25% for Edward Lowassa. Now, because the atmosphere was very pro-opposition at that time, at least in the urban areas, um, we were vilified, I was vilified for showing that citizens were likely to uh, vote for President Magufuli in and maintain the uh, ruling, power, uh, ruling party uh, in power. Fast forward to a year later. So President Magufuli has been elected. Uh, we do another poll. We do these every. We would do these every year. And his popularity rate. If you remember that time, it was uh, what would Magufuli do? He was doing some pretty exciting things for an African president, fighting corruption, firing people in public. Africans were asking for him to be president of Africa. <laughs> exactly. So we did a poll, and in 2016, uh, his popularity was up at 96 percent. You know. Um, very, very, very high indeed. We repeat the exercise again in 2017. And by then, things had started to look a little bit different in terms of his approach uh, to, to governance, including banning political rallies and harassing the opposition became the order of the day. His popularity had fallen then from 96 to 71%. Um, so it was, in a, it was going, on re to, going in reverse. Um, after that, we did yet another one. This is 2018. Uh, we we found that the popularity, not just the president, but the the parliamentarians and councillors was were falling. But the big number that caught the headlines was, of course, the presidential approval rating, which had gone now from seventy one to fifty five percent. You know, so it was this really steep decline over three years. Um, and at that point, I think um, things had changed quite significantly in Tanzania in terms of freedom of expression. Uh, and the government felt that uh, maybe this kind of data and public opinion oughtn't be in the public domain. Um, so that month we published the data in uh, July. Uh, I went on a couple of uh, uh, travel, uh, work travel visits outside the country. When I came back on about the 22nd of July, uh, I was summoned to the immigration officers. I went, dutifully went. And was told that they're going to investigate my citizenship and that they wanted my passport. <laughs> so, so I hadn't carried my passport on that first visit. They said, come back tomorrow uh, with the actual physical document. And I was told, even if you don't come with it, we're going to cancel it anyway. So you can keep a useless document. Um, so I thought, wow, this is quite serious. It's taking a serious turn. 
Um, in the meantime, the Council for Science and Technology had written us a letter, a very sharp one, demanding where we'd gotten the permission to, to run a political poll or any research whatsoever. Where was our research permit? We answered them, you know, uh, we, we, you know within, we were perfectly within our rights, within the law to do the research that we've been doing for ages prior to that. Um, and, and then <laughs> that letter was leaked uh, from Costec. Um, and we were accused of leaking it. We said, no, 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 that's it's not something that we did. So we saw that funny games were being played. However, um, my passport was taken. I was banned from traveling for quite a while. Uh, and uh, I had to fight quietly in the courts to get my, my rights, uh, my freedom of movement back, which happened about two years and almost nine months after, after that. So just a couple of months ago, I was able to get a new <coughs> and travel outside the country again. Thank you, uh, Aidan. So tell me, what kind of child grows up to be the person who gets on the wrong side of government and then sues that government? <laughs> A child of parents who were career civil servants, you know? My father um, was a doctor, my late father. He passed away about five and a half years ago at the age of 85. And he was a, he was a doctor, one of Tanzania's first uh, doctors at independence. My mother was an educator, uh, and both of them worked in the pub in public service, both for the government of Tanzania and for the UN system, uh, all their entire careers. They never ventured out into business or, or, or the private sector. So they instilled in myself and in my siblings a really deep sense of civic and public duty. Um, and I think my father also experienced a little bit of um, adverse publicity way back when I was a toddler. Uh, in 1971 or 72, when he too was uh, defamed in the in the press in Tanzania, and he chose to sue them. He sued them and won. <laughs> and remember, Oduak, this is in 1971, 72. Tanzania is a strong, staunchly socialist one-party state, and of course, all newspapers are owned by the government. So he sued the government and won because the uh, the, the reporters couldn't substantiate the accusations of nepotism and corruption that they had meted upon him. So from that context, um, you know, we, we, we were brought up with a sense of civic uh, duty. Then they sent us to a school in Swaziland, which was essentially founded uh, um, as a protest against apartheid in South Africa in 1962, it was, you know. So you can imagine the kind of air we breathed <laughs> in, in idyllic Swaziland, but the ideological air and the training there was all about social justice. It was all about uh, doing your best to promote the dignity of your fellow man, person, woman, girl, whatever. Uh, so that was really instilled in, in, in myself and again in my, in my younger siblings who we all went to that, that same school. So it just felt completely... This is Waterford. This is Waterford, Kamplaba. <coughs> mm-hmm. Swatini now. Um, so it felt completely natural to, to stand up... Um, not necessarily uh, fearless. I, I like the name of your podcast. It was very fearful indeed. <laughs> but it just felt like the right thing to do when, when you're bullied to stand up and say, excuse me, I don't think I like to be bullied. Right. So if we could find your teachers, the principal, uh, would they be surprised that you got in trouble with the government and that you sued the government? <laughs> I think some of them might be because I was, and I hope I still am, quite an affable, happy kind of fellow. You know, I don't, I don't anger easily. 
Um, I don't shout and kick and scream. I don't um, express myself in that sort of seriously assertive way. So I think they probably would be surprised. You know, my mom said I was a happy baby. My kindergarten teacher said I was, um, you know, also uh, gregarious, but you know, likes to read and and um, and and be curious about what was going around me. Um, <clears throat> So I think some of them would be surprised that I would be, you know, standing up and, and suing the government. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're you're telling us basically that in your family, um, you're taught to stand up um, for yourselves, not to accept bullying. You're then sent to, you know, a social justice based, you know, anti-apartheid um, school. But there are people who are listening to this who might think, yes, you're bold, you're courageous, you're fearless. And then others might think, actually, this is a product of privilege and entitlement. How do you see yourself? You know, let me be honest. I think there is a part of it which is a product of privilege. Uh, entitlement, I don't know. These two, two things are different. You can be privileged without being entitled. Uh, um, so I think it is a product uh, of privilege. Um, we had this amazing upbringing where, because my parents were both, you know, professionals, uh, <laughs> in the, we would discuss a whole bunch of things from a very young age. I will never forget when my father uh, and mother were going to move to Congo, Brazzaville. Uh, I think it was 1977 or 78. So I was eight, eight years old. Um, they actually sat us down, me and my two siblings, <laughs> as eight, seven, and six, and said, right, you have a choice. You can either come with us and go to school in French, or you can stay here in Tanzania and go to school in a boarding school uh, in English. <laughs> and I'll never forget that they actually gave us a choice. Now, it may have been an impression that I got, but it felt like a real decision that we were being asked to make. We decided to stay uh, in Tanzania. Um, so we, were, we grew up in a family where things were, most things were up for debate and discussion. We really um, had a chance to test our burgeoning young ideas and ideals on our parents, you know, and they listened to us and they challenged us back without shutting us down or belittling the the interrogation and the inquiries that we were making about things, you know. So that was really quite, uh, quite special to, to get the sense that you, your ideas are taken on merit rather than on their provenance. You know, you're too young, you're too small, you're too this, you're too that. And so therefore you don't count. We never grew up. Uh, that was that not been my experience. So if in the nuclear family, uh, that is the experience of how you explore the world that, that I went through. Um, it just felt completely natural to do it in the bigger in the bigger universe. You know? So I don't think it is privilege. Uh, I mean, sorry, entitlement. So there is a particular privilege, which is a non-financial privilege. It's a kind of privilege that parents can give their children by listening to them and interrogating with them, uh, you know, authentically and genuinely. And I think it... it, 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 um, it, it uh, results in just wonderful, wonderfully well put together young people. So look, we're, we're speaking, you're uh, back in Dar after a week, spending a week in uh, Kampala. Was this your first trip since getting your um, passport back? It was my first work trip. The very first trip I took was a family one. I went to Swaziland to get my two daughters back uh, from Waterford, uh, back to Tanzania for school, you know. This COVID travel made me nervous. Could they do it on their own? Um, I think yeah, that was just an excuse to do work. I think I just wanted to go and see them <laughs> and fly back. But but for three years, you've not been able to leave uh, Tanzania. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For about two, almost three years. Uh, 
I had not been able to leave the country. So, so Uganda was my first official work trip. Twaweza has an office there with these amazing people that I work with. We have an office in Kenya and, the, and headquarters in Tanzania. And I would make it a habit prior to the travel ban uh, to visit at least twice, maybe three times a year um, mm. to those offices. So I hadn't seen them for a long time. They kept coming to Tanzania uh, <laughs> for meetings and I would see them on Zoom and this kind of thing. It just wasn't the same. So right. it was very nice to be. So look, Aidan, you and I are both privileged in the sense that we have had the good fortune to participate in leadership um, programs designed to build the capacity of leaders on the continent. You're supposed to be a good guy. Okay, this is what I'm hearing from you. You know, social justice, fight the power, stand up to bullies. How jarring was it to find yourself on the wrong side of the state? It was terrifying good work on one, at one level. Uh, it was surprising to find oneself so, uh, uh, so vilified in, the, in that sort of subtle way, you know, uh, with the state sending a message out there that uh, if you do these kinds of things, you are unpatriotic or maybe not worthy of the Tanzanian citizenship. But that part of it was, was very terrifying. Um, it was not something, it's not something that we seek you know, uh, there's a wonderful uh, Swahili word uh, or two words, you know, uchochezi, those are inciters, or uchokozi, those are agent provocateurs, you know, provokers. It's not something that we, we seek um, uh, on, on purpose. Um, so when, when you are labeled with those uh, epithets, it becomes really quite, uh, quite terrifying. Suddenly the word activism can take a very... Uh, almost an insulting tone and at the same time a threatening tone. If someone calls you an activist in there from the state, uh, you wonder what next they're going to do to you, maybe arrest you, incarcerate you, put you away. Um, you know, so it became quite, quite frightening uh, at that time. And so um, I found myself really taking a bit of a step back and, and, and beginning to calculate, is this, how long is this going to go on for? Is it going to get worse? Uh, how do I prepare myself if it is going to get worse? And then what's going to happen to my family, with my family, uh, both nuclear and, and broader? Uh, so I, you start really asking how much you will be able to withstand, <laughs> you know, if the pressure and the heat is turned up. So it was quite frightening. Okay. You, you talk about frightening. You talk about it um, being terrifying. You know, take us through through that. You know, it, it, you know, how did that manifest for you? Did you, you know, could you not sleep? Did you put on weight? Did you lose weight? Did you, you know, stop talking to people? What was that like being in this, you know, um, terrifying space? You become paranoid. Uh, that's one of the first ones. You begin to just wonder who is listening to you, following you um, in in you know visiting your office. I mean, we had a couple of strange sort of visitors come to the office to ask for work. Somebody who came claiming was doing a PhD in journalism who couldn't really string a coherent sentence together, <laughs> you know? Uh, and I thought, wow, this is this, this sounds very strange. Or you'd get some of our documents. Um, um, actually, even prior to my travel ban, uh, our, our polls had made their way to the ruling party headquarters, you know? And I said, how did that get there? <laughs> so you've got to wonder... Uh, what, what's going on in terms of information. So that, that's one. Secondly, suddenly you start getting emails from sort of human rights defenders around the world, you know, telling you, you know, if you need to some assistance in terms of protecting yourself, uh, please let us know. 
Uh, in fact, one even suggested in a phone call that, you know, there are ways we can get you out of your country without using a passport. And I went, wow, <laughs> this is the world you only watch on movies, you know, and suddenly becomes part of your, your own life. But the paranoia was the first one. I, I like people. I like being with people, talking to people, feeling free to express myself and to listen and to challenge. That also to disappeared because you don't know. I didn't know how safe that was uh, anymore. The other one is a sense of, so what do I do now? Do I cow myself? Do I bow to that pressure? Uh, do I shut up? Uh, how do I continue leading this organization and these people who are all looking to me for some kind of clue as to, so what do we do institutionally if our executive director is, um, is constrained in sort of way? So quite apart from the fear and the paranoia, I actually had to put on a very um, strong, brave face. And it is an act uh, to, 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 to a large degree, especially in the, first, in the early days, you know, August, September, October 2018. You were putting on a show so that your comrades, your, your co-workers, family, immediate, you know, my wife and children, don't see me uh, sort of um, experiencing this undue stress because then they get worried and then, and so it multiplies. So, yeah, I put on, you know, you put on this, we, wish, we, shall, we, shall, we shall get through this, you know, it's not as bad as, as, it, uh, as it looks and, you know, everything has a beginning and an end. Meanwhile, around me, uh, people are getting arrested, people are disappearing, uh, people's organizations are being shut down, bank accounts being frozen. Um, and I keep thinking, when is that next going to happen to me? How, you know, how, how, how will I handle being um, um, summoned to a police station or, you know, being taken from, from the office? Thankfully, none of that happened. But, you know, the, the brain, the imagination uh, can, can, can be also quite terrifying. So there was a helplessness uh, uh, around that. And so as clock ticks and... and, and um, my, my colleague at work said, why don't you talk to a lawyer? He might have a thing or two to, to advise you, which I did. Uh, and then they said, there's actually a limited time period in which you can seek what they call an administrative review, where the lawyers can look and the courts can review a government decision and, and see whether it was correct or not. He said, You've got, you, you have to decide whether you're going to do that. After, and it was, I think, by then, September. He said, after November, You'll be time by the deadline's over. So you have to decide now whether you're going to do that. And I said, wow, now this takes it up and another notch. <laughs> Here I am, an individual suing the government and suing the government of a president, Magufuli. <gasps> that is not a, you know, it's not a, a walk in the park. But so I mulled over that and I remembered my father's own experience with suing. <laughs> and I said, maybe I should do that. You know, uh, he did it. How do I explain to my daughters that I did nothing? when this was happening and it was uh, unjust. Uh, and how, how, what does that mean for their own sense of citizens of Tanzania, you know? Um, so, so I took the decision. Uh, it was a tough one. But then after making that decision to actually seek administrative uh, review, sue the government, um, suddenly I felt much calmer. You know why? Because then you've handed over your situation to a due process. It could take long, but it is in process. The alternative was to try and find somebody or listen to the advice I was hearing from 
from quote unquote friends or connections. Oh. They knew people uh, who could talk to people, who could talk to the president maybe, and then things could be uh, uh, could become much easier for me to get my passport back. Um, I remember asking one of them, so what do I have to do in return? He said, well, no, you can just stop being so critical, you know, just, you know, a few things, some things just don't need to be said. Uh, just tone down, you know, what, what you're saying. And I thought, but I haven't said anything insulting or insightful or provocative. I mean, these are, I'm presenting numbers from a research through a very well-known methodology. So, so why would I sell my soul <laughs> and essentially um, completely destroy the essence of my job as, as, as a leader of this organization? So I thought to myself, I think that price is too high to pay to go down that negotiated route. Uh, so when I handed it over to the court system, um, I just suddenly felt, okay, now this is go, it goes due process. I can continue uh, doing uh, hopefully what I, what I can do with a little bit more care. So the sense of fear after four or five or six months, having made that decision, actually melted away slowly. Uh, and I stopped being paranoid. Careful, yes, but paranoid uh, oh. and stressed. That, that sort of diminished significantly. To what extent, Aiden, were your friends and family um, able to support you, understand these tribulations? Um, did, did you find that, you know, people were feeling the need to keep their distance from you so that your, you know, trouble doesn't rub off on them? Or did you find that there was a core of people standing, walking with you, you know, walking through the, that valley with you? Mm. Oh. There, there, there were. Um, first of all... <laughs> My amazing wife, uh, just you know, she, she's very calm. Uh, she just said, "This too shall pass." She would say that quite, quite a bit, you know. Um, but she also said, "Be thankful. There are things, worse things happening to other people, you know. So be thankful. At least you are safe. You know, you are healthy. You are well. You are with us." So that really kept me going. That you know, um, she didn't panic, and so I didn't need to panic uh, uh, about that. Um, my, my siblings, you know, the ones who are with me in Tanzania, my sister, I have a, I have a younger sister who lives in the, in the United States. They're also all very supportive. I've got a, a younger sister who writes in the East African. We've seen her writing and she's kind of like you. <laughs> I mean, she writes just brilliantly, you know, she really gets to the heart and the essence of a matter. And she's also maybe even in more, uh, intense ways, a real social justice uh, campaigner, you know, um, so and she would write sort of gently. Uh, she and we would have conversations about what all of this means. But I got a sense from her and my siblings that they were 150 percent behind me. They didn't push, uh, but they also didn't panic or, or, or were frightened. Unless, of course, they were also hiding <laughs> that from me. My mom was worried. You know, uh, my mom was really worried uh, about that. And she would worry about sometimes what my sister was also writing uh, in the press, you know. Um, but she's of that generation where I think you don't really necessarily stand up uh, to, 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 to the state uh, when, when, when he's doing things. Um, although she did as a university student. So I told her, I had to tell her, you know, mom, uh, your husband sued Nyerere's newspapers, you know, and, and you also were accused of uh, uh, demonstrating when you're in the University of Dar es Salaam. So this just feels like it's natural. <laughs> uh, 
um, going, going, and and uh, seeking this government, uh, this this court review of a government decision. Uh, so I think over time she 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 became uh, slightly less worried, and then again put her deep deep faith to work uh, in, in 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 prayer, um, and and just supported supported me. It, the people sort of uh, took kept a, di- kept a distance. weren't necessarily sort of my friends. It was more the counterparts, the work counterparts we would have in government, you know, um, who found it really quite challenging to pick my calls and to be seen with me in Dodoma and this kind of thing. So I also gave them that space because I didn't want to jeopardize their own situations by insisting in being their presence and, and working with them. Um, so, no, I had a core, my immediate family, my wife and kids, and then my siblings and my mom. Um, and then there were lots of friends who would send me messages and this kind of thing. Um, so they, they kept me going very nicely. You talk about your kids, um, your daughters, and wondering um, what you would say to them if you didn't challenge the injustice that was being um, 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 uh, meted out on you. But did you at ever, did you at any point wonder what have you done to these children? You know, what position are you putting? You know, because the mind, you know, you, you go through all sorts of things. So are you looking at them and, and thinking, am I making life difficult for you? Do you know, that didn't come up very much. It may have been a fleeting thought, but I didn't dwell on it. Because of work, I've got this disease. I'm an eternal optimist, you see. <laughs> I really am an eternal optimist, a pragmatic optimist. So I would look for ways to try and resolve the situation in a principled manner. Uh, and so I thought to myself, as long as they saw me doing that and standing up to intimidation in this particular way, then I think I'm sending the right message uh, to them, regardless of what the outcome is. Of course, I was hoping for a good outcome. I was certainly hoping that nothing worse would happen. Those fears of being kidnapped or arrested and, and charged or put in jail. I was hoping deeply that that was not going to happen. <clears throat> but that set that aside, that I, I wanted them to see that we were doing something and not just sitting and hoping for some miracle uh, or somebody's largesse to improve the situation. Right. So, Aidan, look, you're, you're a trained economist, um, and it kind of makes sense, you know, given the background um, you describe, you know, your parents, the schools that you went to, that the work you do now, working on the expansion of civic space and open government, would follow. But this sort of work, um, anything to do with civil society, is typically demonized by governments, particularly in Africa, um, although we don't have a monopoly on that, um, certainly not anymore. You sit on international boards. So clearly there must be a sense, you know, that you're doing the bidding of white people, of Western governments. How did that perception impact you, your work, your family? Yeah, that's a a great question. It is a very um, prevalent accusation that those of us were working to promote fundamental freedoms of, you know, those basic ones, the three basic ones, association, assembly, expression, uh, are working for some Western interest. <laughs> um, and and I, I, I often thought, where did this come from? When South Africa was under the thumb of apartheid and they were fighting for exactly the same things, the whole world was in their favor, right? Nobody, Nyerere, Mugabe, all of the Southern African countries were on the frontline states. Uh, you know, promoting those three things, you know, um, 
So, and remember, I was in Swaziland towards the dying days of that, uh, of, of that, of that regime. Um, and I never, ever have accepted the premise that those fundamental values are, you know, reserved uh, or come from, emerge from uh, a particular part of the globe and are not relevant to, to others. So I brush it off. I brush off those, those accusations. And the people making the accusations most in our countries, all of them <laughs> largely enjoy the freedom to express themselves, uh, the freedom to associate with who they choose to, uh, the freedom to assemble in forms of companies and other businesses to make oodles of money, right? So they're enjoying those self-same ideas. And yet they tell you, ah, no, democracy is not for us. What they mean is the mechanics of choosing who leads you and getting rid of them, they don't like. <laughs> That's what is meant. But the broader underlying principles of universal human rights, I think those ones they would share with us are fundamental, you know? Uh, and, and they're worth defending. It's just that they may not stick their neck out or put their money where their mouth is in terms of defending those fundamental principles. So I, I don't buy that. Uh, I don't buy that, uh, uh, that premise at all. So therefore, you don't take it on. It doesn't affect your work. It, it doesn't disturb you at all. No, it doesn't. Because you see, the other thing is when you speak to our own governments uh, in uh, at various level of civil servants, uh, <laughs> they appreciate it. When I didn't have my passport, I remember speaking to a permanent secretary at, a, at the airport. Again, you know, we landed in Dodoma. We were on the same plane. And he had just gotten his bag. I was waiting for mine. And he passed by me, uh, slowed down and whispered and said, keep doing what you're doing. This is a permanent secretary in the Magufuli administration. Uh, and I thought, well, then, you know, this is a good thing. A couple of months earlier, a young person, I met a young person in Arusha at a conference talking about decentralization policy for the, for the country. Uh, and he pulled me aside and said, you have no idea how many uh, people are behind you. Us young people are seeing what you're doing. And we really, really appreciate the fact that you're standing up for our rights as you stand up for your own. And so these all came to me as a bit of a surprise because I wasn't a mobilizer. <laughs> uh, you know, a rabble rouser or one, you know, building, building a, 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 a political base. So when you hear from completely different spectrums of Tanzania society that what I'm going through seems to be worth the fight, um, then it just embeds in me how embedded those principles are uh, of human rights and those fundamental freedoms are. Yeah, so it's, again, it just seals from with the conviction that everybody wants these things, everybody. They just maybe uh, are too scared to articulate it or don't quite know how to articulate it, but everybody wants those. So clearly some insights from the experience, but what else did you learn from, you know, from this uh, period uh, and tussle with the government? Um, gosh, I've learned many, many things. First of all, from a personal, from a personal point of view, how do you, how do you handle uh, this, this situation? Um, I think the first one is to, to whether you believe it or not, whether you feel it or not, actually, the word is whether you feel it or not, you have to be able to portray a sense of calm <laughs> and, and, and equanimity, you know, um, because then that tends to calm those around you who you depend and rely on to support you, or you might be leading, you know, so being, having a sense of calm uh, in, 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 uh, in the eyes of others. Is remote. Secondly, 
having a sense of, of humility, you know, uh, that sometimes things happen uh, that you cannot control. And as leaders, uh, uh, and in this African context, we tend to think that we can control a lot of things, a lot more than we actually can. Uh, so if we can just humble ourselves to the fact that stuff happens, life goes on, <laughs> be observant about what's going on so that you can respond or maybe proactively respond, but don't expect that you're going to be able to, uh, to manage everything in a direction uh, that you want uh, uh, it, uh, in, it to go. Um, third is that in, in when you're up against, and I'll talk about governments really here because governments are very large institutions on our continent. There are actually very many people inside that system who support, uh, believe in what it is that you're doing on the outside. They understand that what you are promoting has an impact on them and their families as well, a positive impact, uh, the ability to really be free uh, as citizens in their own countries. So look for allies amongst those people. Protect them, but look for allies who will be able to tell you, work with you, uh, quietly advise you, support you, all of these things. So we did that. We looked for, uh, for, for allies uh, in, in government. This is professionally speaking. Uh, the fourth thing is, as far as possible, avoid being partisan, uh, <laughs> avoid um, being um, sort of, I'm looking for the word here, vengeful in, 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 in that kind of way, you know. I'm receiving this, uh, so I'm going to give it back. Um, I think that that um, can sometimes assuage our, our, our emotional beasts but they're hardly ever productive, you know. <laughs> they're hardly ever productive in trying to deal with the situation. Uh, and always be ready to talk uh, to your detractors, uh, your, 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 your abusers or whatever it is. You know, just be ready to, to, to have that conversation because it's amazing actually how much power you have. I realized amazingly how much power one gets when one stands for principle. Uh, states are terrified. <laughs> Repressive states are terrified of people who stand up for principle. Uh, and so I learned that there's a great deal of moral power uh, in, in the kind of work that we do, as long as one, that it is done with integrity, uh, with transparency, with authenticity. So look, um, I'll ask you to reflect on those lessons and how we apply them to rebuilding a just and sustainable world in a minute. But first, I'm, I'm curious because these troubles are also taking place, you know, as the COVID pandemic takes hold across the world. And a lot of the work you do is based on data, evidence. Um, and until recently, the Tanzanian response to COVID seemed to be based on anything but data. So what is this doing to your professional mind and the workings of Tuaweza as you're looking around you? It was very, very challenging uh, to have a, uh, a rational conversation <laughs> about a pandemic that was just raging around the world and around us and inside the country. It was very, uh, it was very difficult. But I think we took the view that we have to find a way to engage with the narrative and change the narrative uh, in, in uh, clever ways, uh, in, in, you know, in creative ways, so that the conversation would continue based on rationality, right? Um, so while 
the official position was either that we don't have it, we've defeated it through prayer and fasting, or that we are we're protecting ourselves through the steaming and traditional uh, remedies. Uh, we didn't, again, back to not being vengeful, we didn't necessarily downplay all of that. We just said there are also these other things that you do, social distance, mask, and sanitize. And so we would promote quietly on the social media uh, that particular uh, narrative uh, as a counterpoint uh, to what the official story uh, was. But it did force us to, <clears throat> to really uh, step back and think that, you know what, data doesn't, data doesn't actually convince Uduak. Stories convince. People are, are changed by stories, not numbers. So we have started and are continuing to really um, find a better way of communicating these important things that we're promoting through stories, human interest stories. So we're working with, with media and not necessarily around COVID because that's, that's a subject that you didn't really talk about until more recently, but around things like uh, the rights of girls to go back to school uh, after being you know, made pregnant when they're still young. Um, so we, we would tell stories about this. We would tell stories about citizens really getting together and demanding that their local government finally finish a school that they had built and had been sitting there for nine years without a roof. Again, these are the stories that tend to inspire others, and we want to spread them out. We sp supported uh, two young men who did a really beautiful, I think it's a 40-minute film about a young girl who was forced into marriage, uh, you know, um, and promoting their work. We're working with women who work in the marketplace, uh, supporting them to mobilize and to crystallize their own demands, uh, agenda for local government authorities who run all of our municipal markets, right? To improve the conditions where they have to work with such basic things such as let's have a, a, a room where we can go and nurse our infant children without leaving our stores in the market, going all the way home, and wondering who to leave there to look after what our, our goods and our assets. So I give you these examples to show you that we, tr we, we decided to become very pragmatic about promoting uh, those very important uh, uh, issues of citizen agency, the ability for us to make decisions that, that, shape, make decisions that shape our own lives, um, promoting voice, um, maybe not necessarily about COVID, but about other things, such as the right to go back to school, um, so we became very pragmatic uh, in our approach, while at the same time showing and 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 uh, saying, "Look, uh, doing things rationally is the best way to achieve the results that you're after." This other way can lead to really some important unintended consequences. And then, as you know, Udua, uh, when the second wave essentially hit uh, Tanzania, uh, you could see the results in the number of people who died, prominent people uh, who died, and I think that helped. Um, erode the credibility of the official uh, narrative and position. Uh, and more and more people organically decided to much, be much more open uh, about, about the scientific approach to protecting us from, from COVID, you know, those, those three things of SMS, sanitizing, masking, and social distancing. So look, Tanzania has a new president, Madam Samia Suluhu, and she's taking a different approach to her late predecessor. Given your troubles under that administration, her predecessor's administration, what, if anything, has changed in the way you approach your work? Um, let me put it this way. We're being cautiously optimistic uh, that things are now 
going to move in a, in a good direction. The rhetoric and the messaging from the president is powerfully different. Uh, yesterday, she spoke to the Wazir wa Dar es Salaam, which is a tradition that all presidents have tended to do and that speak to to the, the uh, to, to the Wazir wa Dar es Salaam and set out... The, the elders, elders of Dar es Salaam, yeah. The elders of, of, of Dar es Salaam. And she set out a very unifying kind of message. You know, concretely, she said, look, I'm not going to look... Uh, when I'm looking for talent to hire into my government, I'm not going to look at... Uh, Uh, your party affiliations, your gender, your race, your religion. Nope. As long as I think you can do good for the country, you're part of the team that I want to put together. So that was very unifying. She wore a mask, you know, uh, in Tanzania. She wears masks in Uganda and Kenya, the two trips she's made. But she wore a mask that day. She told the young people, they're old people. We're here to protect you. You know, we have this disease. So she did not deny wearing a mask. So these things and, and other things are making us cautiously optimistic. Why are we cautious? Because the laws that were changed to repress civil society are still on the books. Um, and there's some other laws. So those haven't changed. So we have to actually work much, much harder to, to reduce the criminali criminalization, for example, of free expression that is in our, a number of our uh, uh, laws. Um, to get people who are falsely accused of economic sabotage out of jail. So these things need to happen for us to be much more concrete about our optimism uh, in, in the president. But I think the doors and the windows are opening. Uh, we, are be, we are hopefully going to be a lot more assertive about, about, uh, about those things. But I would like us also to be supportive uh, of, of the new direction that's been taken by her, uh, because not everybody is going to be on her side. <laughs> Even government will be quiet. Um, so we've got to make sure that she succeeds in, in the vision that she's beginning to put forward. And I'm, 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 you know, personally, myself, I'm a big fan of the fact that we have a woman president, a Muslim woman president, a Zanzibari Muslim woman president. I think that's a fantastic thing for Tanzania. So look, um, coming back to the lessons, the insights drawn from your um, recent troubles, how might we apply those to the task and opportunity to rebuild a better world uh, given the devastation unfolding um, as a result of the COVID pandemic? Okay, I think number one, we need to be uh, very clear-eyed about the devastation that is unfolding. And some of us are wanting, I think, still to deny Uh, because of where we sit, we don't experience the death and the devastation and the destitution that COVID is causing. We think, ah, you know, I'm just inconvenienced because I can't go for my regular trip to Dubai. We need to understand the extent of the devastation that is immediate, that is visible to us. We also need to understand the what I'm going to call the structural damage, I think, that it has done. And one of the biggest things that, that, is, that, that we're seeing in our statistics in Kenya and Uganda is the deepening inequality between the haves and the have-nots. Um, in Kenya, the people who have suffered the greatest fall in income, everybody has, but are the urban informal sector workers, the Juakali sector. Um, and they're not going to go anywhere. They're trying to go back to the, to the rural areas, they'll come back. Those kind of structural challenges to our social cohesion are important to understand and to begin to address uh, directly. So number one, let's make sure we know the extent of the problem. Let's not hide or diminish uh, that one. Secondly, as individuals or maybe as institutions, we do not have all the answers. This challenge is a systemic one. We have to find ways to really collaborate, partner, work together. 
to solve some of these problems. Um, you know, um, vaccines, the, 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 the vaccine problem, right? They said, look, Africa doesn't have enough cold storage and cold chain and cold this to make sure vaccines reach where they're all supposed to reach. And uh, somebody said, yeah, but, you know, Coca-Cola and Tusker reach every corner of Kenya in a cold chain. <laughs> so why can't you put vaccines uh, in Coke trucks and beer trucks to reach those places where they're supposed to be? What I'm trying to say is that we need to think about creative solutions to begin to, to deal with the pandemic directly, right? Um, <clears throat> uh, and, and to really get ahead uh, of the virus because the build up, the recovery and the renewal that comes after that is also monumental task. It will require for us to really partner and work uh, closely together and creatively. Let us not be um, what's this, uh, tempted by trying to claim credit for big, uh, for big victories. Because, you know, big victories may not necessarily be there. Remember, we, you know, the big victory was getting a vaccine in nine months, you know? Uh, but the bigger victory is in stopping the pandemic. Uh, and that's going to be important. I think the third thing is we've got to do all of this without suppressing people's fundamental freedoms, <laughs> you know, and that is also hard. So we've got to, we've got to be able to be open. We've got to be able to be vulnerable uh, as leaders, political and business. Otherwise, I say, you know what? I know this much. I don't know that much. Maybe you know. How can we pool our strengths together to solve the problem? But that means being open and transparent and inclusive of other people's experiences, energies, and enthusiasm uh, to deal with this problem. We will never do it if we think that we have the solution or we have the strength, or we have the resources uh, to do it because it is it cuts across um, it cuts across geographies, it cuts across specialisms, it cuts across uh, talents. Um, so we need to pull all of that uh, together in order to 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 try and defeat this pandemic. Now that all sounds apparent theoretical, right? <laughs> but to bring it down sort of the personal level is is number one at an individual. Keep yourself informed. Know what's going on. You know, read, uh, read wisely, read widely. Uh, uh, number two, look for people you can work with. Uh, reach across your comfort zones and 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 learn from people who 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 you may not necessarily uh, collaborate with. Uh, and number three, really be open. Really be open to the possibilities that that are there because the world is going to. The world, I think, is, is transforming before our eyes faster than usual, but it really, we're not going to go back to what it was before um, in, in many, many ways. So we need to be prepared. Somebody, I'll finish with this. Somebody said, you know, there are two responses to a tsunami or a very large wave. One is um, you get a surfboard and you surf the wave. <laughs> the other one is you get a life jacket, right? <laughs> At least with a surfboard, you have a chance to direct where you're going to end up on the tsunami wave. With a life jacket, you gotta, the wave will take you where it wants to take you. I'm a surfboard kind of guy, not a life jacket. <laughs> No, I, I love the imagery of um, of that. Um, look, we're drawing to a close, uh, Aiden. Uh, you've got other things to do, but I'd like you to indulge me with some rapid fire responses. Is that okay? What's your what's your de what's your deepest fear for yourself? Oh, that I'll die before I reach the age of eighty five. I want to I want to beat my dad. <laughs> it's very selfish. What's your deepest fear for the world? That we shall fracture, that we shall not repair the fractures that we are causing uh, and that have manifested themselves, that we'll continue going our separate ways. That would be terrible. 
What's the last thing you did that scared you? Um, I like sailing. So I took my daughter out on a boat and I'm not a very brilliant sailor and it's a very small boat. And I took her out there. She's a good swimmer, but I thought to myself, this is, you know, what, what if something terrible happens? <laughs> this is just about two weeks ago. Um, she wants to go sailing with me again. So man, I must have done something right. Okay. Right. Um, you've given us uh, your insights from your uh, troubles with the government, but tell us three things in your fear-busting toolkit. Three things in my fear-busting bus- fear toolkit. Okay. Um, walk through life with your eyes wide open. You know, um, that's number one. Uh, number two, uh, don't take yourself too seriously. Okay. <laughs> and number three, um, find yourself somebody really good whom you can just let your hair down with and talk to. Excellent. Very, very, very good. Well, 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 well advised. So look, um, Aiden, um, it's been such a privilege. Thank you for honoring my invitation um, and for your time um, on Fearless. Thank you so very much. Thank you. It's a great podcast. I look forward to uh, listening to your other Fearless uh, interviewees. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Aidan Ayakuze is the executive director of Toweza East Africa. Toweza works across the region to enable children to learn, citizens to exercise agency, and governments to be more open and responsive. Aidan is a member of the Global Steering Committee of the Open Government Partnership. He also sits on the board of the Global Partnership for Sustainable Development Data.